cover to cover with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Stone's Throw today is August. August the 17th, 2010, folks. Right. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, folks. I, I try to, I try to collect my thoughts when I left the house today, but what I heard was, uh, a piece of an interview with Abby Lincoln. Uh, she was talking to Terry Gross. Abby Lincoln is dead. Shoot out the lights, folks. Last Saturday, the 14th of August. Abby Lincoln, dead at age 80. She has gone to jazz heaven. She had all the art, all the art of those blues women with none of the masochism. You can catch that interview again at 7 tonight. If you want to hear what she had to say to Terry, actually there was some of the music was there too, so uh, that's worth a listen. Just a few years older than I am, I remember her so well, and I always wondered why she was not as famous as some of the others. I think it's because she didn't she didn't want to be, you know. Uh, the Lena Horns and all of those Hollywood ladies. Um, cared more about their career as she said in the interview she said I was just looking for a man anyway she was straightforward honest about her sexuality she didn't want to suffer she wanted a real man you remember those were the times when masochism was what it was all about I don't know why that's so appealing to some men not to all of course what she was was an authentic human being, an authentic artist, and a genuine radical. Uh, this past month and more, cable TV has been screening Nothing But a Man. It's a movie she made with Ivan Dixon. Most awesome film. I remember it was made in 1964, and I remember in the late 60s showing it to high school students, you know, junior high kids. And it was shocking. It was um, so grounded, and the style, the style was almost over the top. It was so realistic, you know. They, they were both so, um, I don't know what it was. They, it, it was... Um, I think the father, the guy who plays the father of Ivan Dixon, he's dying of booze and, and uh, dying of being black. And I, I don't know, there's a scene when uh, he dies and then when they bury him, there's a huge uh, 
shovel, you know, one of those machine shovels that, that digs out the grave. And uh, <laughs> the audience almost laughed. It, it, was, it was Brando-esque. That was the style in those days. Anyway, if you get a chance to see Nothing But a Man, I do recommend it, especially the portraits of the fathers. The woman's father is a classic um, accommodationist, we call it, right, uh, collaborator, and the other guy is an angry guy. He's a reactionary suicide, as Huey Newton used to say, reactionary suicides are the ones who believe what the oppressor says about them and conveniently die of whatever it is that's uh, killing them, in this case the alcohol and the bitterness. Uh, anyway, uh, check out uh, Terry Gross tonight at 7 o'clock. We shouldn't mention, of course, KQED 88 FM. My goodness. Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> Our Lady of Jazz. I'm sure that the folks um, on KPFA will have a tribute put together very soon. Uh, now, I also noticed in the works another loss, if I'm not mistaken. Although he's still alive, I see Christopher Hitchens on the Charlie Rose show and he's ill. Looks not good. Uh, he's lost, well, his hair is gone from the chemotherapy. He has, has cancer of the esophagus. And he didn't come out and say that he's terminal, but he, he implied that, that he would have a short life. It's evident that he's gravely, gravely ill. And, uh, it's funny because he looks rather, rather healthy. I mean, he's bright eyed and cheerful, I think. Maybe he stopped drinking because uh, that look he has is so serene. No sneers now, just a gentle wit. He seems to be taking things well. I guess he's aware of how short his time is. Anyway, in July, he was scheduled to be here in the Bay Area. And when he canceled his tour, I thought maybe something like this was happening um, at the time when he canceled his Berkeley appearance I read a snatch of uh, talk of the town in the New Yorker telling about his mother's suicide uh, in a hotel in Athens it was right yes looking at the Parthenon anyway there he was age 24 having to claim his mother's body there's a review of his recent book in the August issue of Harper's Magazine, check it out. The reviews don't mention his illness, so I think perhaps that is news. Uh, most of the reviews had uh, a few things, a few reservations. You know, Christopher Hitchens has been, uh, well, he, he said a few nice things about the war in Iraq. He thought it was a good idea. Obviously, he does believe that... Uh, there is a war with the East, East and West. Yes, the civilization, his civilization, he thinks, is under threat. And uh, <laughs> he, he, I always get a kick out of Christopher Hitchens. I think of him as one of the descendants of, of um, Gore Vidal. Of course, Gore Vidal has had a long, long lifetime. Uh, Christopher Hitchens... 
gives me that feeling, oh, you know, the old Oscar Wilde scene, although Oscar was an entirely different, uh, entirely different kind of humor, but uh, there's a lot of material in uh, Christopher Hitchens about uh, uh, gay life that I think you might be interested in. I always got a kick out of his irritation with his dislike for Bill Clinton. He he loved Tony Blair. He thought Tony Blair was terrific. Tony Blair was, of course, busy saving uh, Christianity and Western civilization. Uh, I thought I thought that his irritation with Bill Clinton was uh, elitism. You know, uh, Christopher Hitchens uh, is a Brit, and he went to. British schools, but he says no. Um, he had talked to some of the women, uh, the ones that Clinton hit on, you remember, and he said that he believed that uh, the man was not, not a gentleman, let's put it that way. The one I believed was named Juanita Broderick. You may remember that. She did not come out and tell her story until after the Monica mess. And uh, whatever you may think of <laughs> little Monica Lewinsky, she was, of course, an opportunist of a kind. But Juanita Broderick struck me as the real, the real deal. Uh, she uh, knew that uh, there was nothing she could do. There was no way she could uh, out Bill Clinton. Uh, she should have tried, actually. The assault uh, was pretty early in his career. He was not even governor of Arkansas by that time. So uh, I think that the woman, she waited so many decades to tell the story that uh, setting the record straight is impossible. Uh, never mind. Uh, the autobiography that Christopher Hitchens was uh, bringing with him to share with us in July uh, is on the bookshelves. It's called Waspish and Absorbing by Ben Benjamin Moser in the Harper. Harper's of uh, August. Right. I like this review. It's fairly hmm, it's fairly straightforward. He he does seem to like well he what is that? He says that in his frankness, that is, in Christopher Hitchens' frankness, he seems to have been everywhere and known everyone and that he's more explicit than most people uh, uh, who write memoirs about and get the quandaries of self-chronicling, right? It's hard to talk about yourself. Uh, <laughs> here's what... Here's what Christopher Hitchens says. says, if you're going to sleep with Thatcher's future ministers and toy with a future president's lesbian girlfriend, well, you will not be able to savor it fully at the time and you will have to content yourself with recollecting it in some kind of tranquility. Okay, I'm stuck. If anybody knows who uh, President Clinton's lesbian girlfriend was back in the day... Do write me a note, because I can't think who it was, which one of them. Anyway, Hitch 22 begins with the modest childhood of Hitchens' uh, days. Yes, see, he was a Royal Navy brat. His father was a glowering war hero. Grim, yes. His mother was a 
cryptic, yes, a cryptic Jewish mother whose ethnic origins he discovers only after her dramatic suicide in a hotel room looking onto the Parthenon, if I remember the New Yorker piece. She had run away with a poet. She was grasping at something. Uh, she had one of those romantic impulses. You know women. Anyway, <laughs> Yvonne was her name, Yvonne Hitchens had invested all her hopes in her son. Yes, she wanted Christopher to do it for her. He was packed off early to boarding school and just out of Oxford. He made a name for himself as what one haughty teacher called a pamphleteer. Right, pamphleteer, I love that. I used to be a pamphleteer in the 60s and 70s. I wrote for the women's newspapers, right. Hitchens chronicles his life through portraits of his friends. Let's see, they mention a number of guys. Uh, Martin Amos is the one that he mentioned in this interview, and he did say to Charlie Rose that Martin Amos was an intimate, was an intimate friendship. So he's, <laughs> I guess, out of the closet, always has been. Uh, he goes through the stages of his political evolution, Talks about early visits to Cuba, laments his naivete, sometimes revisits the scenes of his early confusions, yes, positions of his younger self. He had paternal indulgence for his younger self. Yes, I like to do that too. Poor little girl, what was she thinking? Yes. Uh, of his Cuban dalliance, he writes, I do not completely hate myself for attempting this book balancing. In retrospect, most of his positions are quite safe. Uh, and they go on to say that, yes, the Argentine hunter, the Ayatollah's fatwa against Salman Rushdie, yes, he was politically correct about the right things, right? Uh, he captures the excitement, now forgotten, of many of those political moments, uh, and he does emphasize how shamefully few eminences spoke out for Salman Rushdie early in that affair. Hmm. How lazily many people who ought to have known better lent their support or their silence to ghastly regimes from Poland to Portugal. The reviewer goes on to say, but one gets the feeling that by stressing his own noble pedigree, Christopher Hitchens is building up to his support of the war in Iraq. Of course, yes, right, my own notes say that's where he loses me. I was never sure why he was doing that, but I think he was sincere. I think he is sincere. He thinks that um, we needed to do that. Uh, well, let's see. He goes through, well, the condemnation of the unquestionably ghastly Saddam. He turns into a justification for the war. He comes up with statements that read like caricatures of Washington insiderdom. Right. He says that all his discussions with Wolfowitz and people at the Pentagon, he says, I never heard anything alarmist on the weapons of mass destruction issue. <laughs> I guess the alarmism was reserved for the Rubes and the United Nations Security Council. Who knows? Uh, I'm not quite clear about uh i think i think it is necessary for him to clarify especially if he's not going to be with us much longer i hope he writes something 
It makes sense. Uh, anyway, he writes about Watergate. That's a while ago. And he says that Congress had held wide open hearings of the kind it was very hard to imagine taking place in the Palace of Westminster. Now, uh, the reviewer goes on to say, one can't help recalling that the war Hitchens supported, that is the war in Iraq, and all the revolting abuses it spawned, has been extensively investigated in Westminster and never in Washington. His outrage is not directed, however, at the architects of Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo. <laughs> the reviewer's final, final quote here uh, from Christopher Hitchens. Hitchens writes, It is those on the left who have come to offend and irritate me the most. Yes, I find it funny that it is always those of our own house that drive us nuts. I, I was always fascinated especially during the brouhaha on Bill Clinton, how angry lefties were. They always seem, <laughs> they always seem to be most upset. It's like, you know, when members of your own family, those closer to you, uh, I think we may sooner or later begin to see something of the same phenomenon with the beloved Barack Obama, who, although he does his very, very best, cannot fail to disillusion most people or many people on the left uh, I had any number of other things to talk to you about today but I think what I would like to do uh, first of all I want to talk a little bit about uh, well I, I, I need to tell you about something in case you do watch cable television uh, Pillars of the Earth from the book by Ken Follett uh, is running on STARS, that's S-T-A-R-Z, the STARS Network. And I went ahead and ordered it. I canceled some cable channels and took that one for a while. Not too much money, you know, you cancel HBO and you go to the other one and then back and forth. And they get crabby if you keep changing, but I just uh, go from one to the other. Uh, remember, Pillars of the Earth... The Ken Follett novel. It's not about the pillars of society. It's about the pillars of the earth. <laughs> it's about cathedral building. Now, that's a metaphor, and it's also what the story is about. It's eight hours of um, 11th century. Uh, we're back in the time of Queen Maud. I think we get up to Henry I. And uh, that's a century ago. We're going back a century. Uh, and these guys are building this terrific cathedral. Mm-hmm. Uh, Winchester Cathedral, I think of that song by the Beatles. There's a wonderful scene in a recent episode where the master builder, played by Rufus Sewell, you know Rufus Sewell, he's a darling, darling man. He's so good-looking. He takes a piece of glass and shows it to his workmen, one of whom is this sculptor, this artist. And he shows them the glass and he tells them that someday cathedrals will be made of this. And of course they laugh at him and say that's absurd. And in one scene during which a couple of the men are having a brouhaha fighting over a, a woman, I think, uh, they knock down half of the uh, scaffolding and positively 
ruin one side of the the cathedral and uh, the master builder loses his temper big time. He's been explaining to these young men that they will not, of course, finish the cathedral in their lifetime. He gives it, oh, 50 years, he says, maybe 50 years. Uh, The point of the story, the subtext, the larger metaphor, is that they are building their souls. I remember the great filmmaker Ingmar Bergman said he liked to think of himself as one of the builders in one of the great Gothic cathedrals. Uh, You know, that he wanted to be responsible maybe for one of the little faces or gorgoyles, something. He wanted to contribute his bit to this uh, cathedral, this this work of art. You remember the Gothic uh, cathedrals were supposed to be reaching up to heaven. The soul was supposed to take flight. Once in a while, somebody gets up there at the top of one of the ladders and they want to take off. This this show tries to do something with Christian faith. It's not bad. Not bad. Uh, check it out and tell me what you think. Because, of course, we know that there were some, some positive aspects to the arrival of Christianity in Europe. Uh, there were also some horrific effects. Yes, a terrible beauty. There were terrorists, there were tyrants, saints, martyrs, sinners, whatever. Ian McShane, one of my most favorite actors, plays the wicked bishop. Oh, is he ever wicked. He also goes in for flagellation, puts nails in his shoes, you know. He, he well, doesn't quite mean to, but he makes a slight mistake, and he's responsible for the death of a child, so he puts some nails in his shoe, you know, to work it out, because he can't confess to doing something that uh, wicked. But anyway, uh, the flagellation scenes are nice. He also wears something, oh, a hair shirt tied around his waist. He does this to make up for his uh, bad behavior, but he's very, very ambitious. Actually, the actor's kind of over the top, he did a performance in a show called Deadwood that I still watch sometimes. He was so good. He plays the uh, saloon keeper in Deadwood. Uh, now, that's art. That was really a brilliant show. This one is what I call... Oh, shoot. Uh, what would you call it? I don't know. It's uh, It's not trash, no, but it's melodrama... On a grand scale, it's uh, eight hours of swashbuckling fun uh, with a few a few attempts to be real. There's a character who plays a witch. I wish they would expand her role. They, they may, but she gets into some trouble. She has a, kind of an old vendetta with the bishop, but uh, she makes out the case for pagan beliefs. Her son is one of the uh, artists, one of the sculptors, and uh, he seems to be the lead. I, I like him. You may have noticed him. He's a young actor, Redmond, R-E-D-M-A-Y, Redmond. I'm not sure the last name. Yes. And he played, he had a small part in the other Boleyn sister, 
Lately, I drive myself crazy trying to track the actors through all their uh, roles. Anyway, he's interesting. Uh, they have one woman who's kind, kind of a generic feminist. You know, she is the only female wool merchant in uh, old England. There, anyway, uh, the master builder is sort of the center. He's one of the the threads going through it. Uh, they call him Jack Builder. Reminds me of a time, I think, at least in in the Far East. Do you remember when people, they took the name of their profession or their job, you know, like your, if you uh, worked the land, your last name was Farmer. You know, it makes good sense. Anyway, uh, I'm happy to watch Pillars of the Earth uh just for the costumes, that's enough for me. There is a wicked lady. She has a, a great um, birthmark on her face that somehow seems to mark her. Yes, with the touch of the beast. She is, um, well, she's not quite, she's not quite as grim a murderess as there we had in Rome, you will remember my most favorite, forever, ever favorite of all the cable TV goodies was HBO's production of Rome, 23 or 24 hours of ancient Rome in the time of Julius Caesar. Uh, now, this medieval lady, uh, I think, I think uh, she promises to come off as about as villainous as you could, uh, as you could be in those days, uh, she's obviously in charge of her family. She's, uh, her incestuous relationship with her son is enough to put her in the, uh, the category of the damned. There are at least six people in this show that should, uh, be forever damned, but the priest, the good priest, there's always one of those, is another, it's a difficult one. Uh, I don't know what they can do with his character, because of course, we have to remember that there were some priests who did believe in uh, holy poverty and that sort of thing. Uh, this guy is of course too good to be true, and when the witch tries to explain to him the uh, the wisdom of her pagan beliefs, he is willing to listen. Of course, he thinks that she's wrong, but he is willing to consider. Uh, he finally accepts her son and persuades the son to become a monk. Of course, he's not about to accept him as a, a pagan, but he's useful, the son, you know, the sculptor. So, hey, I'm not sure how they're going to do this, but they're certainly not going to be able to reconcile uh, the pagans with the Christians. Uh, check out Pillars of the Earth. I'm sure it will be out on video sooner or later. Once again, this is about uh, men's souls. The Pillars of Society is something else. That's about uh, the ways in which, um, what is that, our desire to survive causes us to become... Uh, is the word for that? Oh, murderers, killers. Uh, man's inhumanity to man makes countless thousands a mourn. <laughs> you know, man's inhumanity to woman is also explored. Uh, there's a minimum of rapes and so forth, but there's one young woman who is um, 
traumatized, I'm sure she will find true love. But um, I don't know. Check it out. Pillars of the Earth stars. And at 7 tonight, you can hear an interview with Abby Lincoln, Terry Gross on NPR. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. From the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the Micromanage, micromanage, come one, come all. You will choose the board members who can wrestle these wild, efflorescing creatures into shape. What are you talking about? We don't want to interfere with the good work of our KPFA programmers. I'm kidding. I love them, too. The vocal station board includes listeners and staff, paid and unpaid. There's a role for listener oversight. It is our money. Please meet or hear from and question all the candidates. It's your right and your responsibility to protect this treasure. Join us for a candidate forum Thursday. August 19th, 6.30 to 9 p.m. at the Berkeley Fellowship for Unitarian Universalists, 1924 Cedar at Bonita, Berkeley. If you need to carpool, call 510-332-7181 or email les underscore kpfa at pacifica.org. Ballots for your local station board elections will be sent out August 15th and need to be returned on or before September 30th. It's 3.30. You're listening to KPFA.